As we begin our worship this morning around the, the Lord's table, I'd like to just begin by asking you a question. And here's the question. It is this, was there any other way for God to save human beings than by sending His Son to die in our place? Was there any other way that He could have redeemed us? Was there any other way that He could have saved us? Let me say, first of all, that God is not really under obligation to save anyone at all. Certainly, the fact that He does saves is a picture of His grace. When we realize, according to 2 Peter 2, 4, that God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them, Peter says, to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment, then we can begin to realize that God could have just left us in our sins forever. I mean, He could have just chosen, I suppose, to save no one. But once God and His amazing love decided to save sinful human beings, then the Scriptures are abundantly clear that there is no other way for man to be saved but through Jesus Christ and His death. But then the question comes back to us, why, though, would the love of God take such a radical move to fulfill its purpose? Why the sacrifice of his own son? John Murray, in his wonderful little book called Redemption Accomplished and Applied, stated it this way, Why did God become man? And why, having become man, did he die? And why, having died, did he die the accursed death of the cross? And so this morning, I want to just take us to the necessity of Christ's death and just remind you of a couple of scriptures, and then we'll partake of the Lord's table, okay? Look first at Mark chapter 8, and I'll move us around a little bit. In Mark chapter 8... And we're here building on our thesis, the necessity of his death. But in Mark chapter 8, there Jesus, when he was living in his earthly ministry, if you will, that uh, he was about ready to be offered up on the cross, he said this in 831 of Mark, he, Jesus, and he began to teach them, that's the disciples, that the Son of Man... And here's the key word, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. But he gives that statement there off the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ that the Son of Man must suffer many things. If you look over just the next page in chapter 9, he said it in emphatic terms there in Mark chapter 9 in verse 31 he was teaching his disciples saying to them the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and when he is killed after three days he will rise and so he told them what was going to happen that the Son of Man was going to suffer, here in Mark 9.31, that he is going to be delivered into the hands, as it says there, of men, and they will kill him. 
Look over in Mark chapter 10, in verse 32, still in his earthly ministry, for a third time here, in a rather quick space, in 1032, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And as Jesus was walking ahead of them, they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was going to happen, saying, See, we are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. I mean, this was the refrain. The Son of Man must suffer and die. Look over in your Bible to the Gospel of Luke in Luke chapter 24. There, again, our Lord, and now as you turn to Luke 24, you're recognizing he had been lifted up on the cross. He, in fact, was delivered over to evil men. They, in fact, did crucify him. And on the third day, he rose again. And do you remember after his resurrection, he was speaking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And remember, he said to them in 24, verse 25, chapter 24, 25, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And now this, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. Was it not necessary and implied in the answer was yes, because in verse 27, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all of the scriptures the things concerning himself. Can you imagine what that, that walk must have looked like for those two disciples? when Jesus Christ himself began to take them all the way through the Old Testament, all the way up to his death, and began to show them that the Son of Man had to suffer. And here in verse 26, it was absolutely necessary that he should take on the sins for us and die for for us as his people. Look over in the book of Hebrews, will you? Just in Hebrews Chapter 2, there's another grand statement there. Again, I'm just building for you a biblical foundation of the necessity of his death. But in Hebrews chapter 2, some very key terms there. In verse 14, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, verse 17, he had to be made like his brethren, his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There's that marvelous statement there in verse 17 that he had to be made like his brothers in every respect then at the end of the verse to make propitiation for the sins of his people. I mean, this is the teaching of Scripture. Look over at Hebrews chapter 10 
It says it in emphatic terms there in verse 4, chapter 10 of Hebrews, verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then it says in verse 14 of chapter 10, for by a single offering he is perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. In other words, his offering of himself redeemed us from our sins. And certainly, beloved, you remember in the garden when Jesus prayed in Matthew 26, Father, if it is possible to let this, what, cup pass from me, if it's possible. But of course, right, came back quickly was the prayer, but not my will be done, but thine will be done. And so here is the clear teaching of the scripture of the absolute necessity of his death. In fact, in Matthew's gospel in 1621, it says from this time, Jesus Christ began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem. And when it uses that phrase, of course, it's entering into Jerusalem to die on behalf of those who would trust him. So we see it is absolutely necessary for Christ to go to the cross on our behalf that our sins might be wiped away. So when we ask the question, was there any other way for God to save human beings than by sending his son to die in our place? And we would say there is no other way. Now, just for a brief time this morning, let me take you to three truths on his death that allow us to remember the significance of of the cross, okay? Three truths that will allow us to remember the significance of the cross and then we'll partake of communion. First, I just want to say it this way and I'm going to string these in a in a series together as you'll see. First is that God gave us his own son. God gave us his very own son. When you when you think of the cross, And when you think of his death, here the scripture tells us in Romans 5.10 that we were reconciled to God very clearly through the death of his son. So God gave us his very own son. I mean, I suppose if you're just uh, maybe asking rhetorically, he he maybe could have done it another way in, in our human thought. I mean, we know he couldn't have. I mean, he could have sent a man. He could have sent a prophet. For that, we would be grateful. I suppose he could have, in, in the mind and heart of God, sent an angel to accomplish this, but he doesn't, and you know that. There's an absolute necessity. He sends his own son, eternally begotten from his own being, and he sends and he gives of himself. And we'll look at that next week when it says in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his, what? His one, and in some translations, it says only begotten son. It would be fair to translate it this way. He gave his one and only unique son. So to accomplish the forgiveness of sins, first, he gives us his own son. In fact, John Stott said it this way. He said, the logic of this is inescapable. How could the Father's love have been demonstrated if he had sent somebody else to us? No, Stott said, since love is 
its essence, self-giving, then if God's love was seen in giving his son, he must thereby have been giving himself. I like that end of quote. So God gives his own son. Paul put it this way in Romans 8.32, that God did not spare his own son, but gave himself up for us all. So first, I would say God gives us his own son. But secondly, from the scripture, God gave his own son to die. He gave his own son. Here, the emphasis is to die. Look back in Romans, if you will, in chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, it tells us there that in 5.8, God shows his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, the text says that Christ died for us. He died. I mean, it would be wonderful if God had given his son and so himself only to become flesh for us, to live and give his life as, as an example for us. But clearly, this is only the beginning, isn't it? He not only gave a son, but he gave a son to die for us. Paul said it in Philippians where he said he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, born in the likeness of man, being found in the appearance of human form or in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a what? A cross. So he gives his own son, but he gives his own son here to die for us. He gave himself to be tortured, if you will, to be ridiculed, and the crucifixion itself for, that our sins might be forgiven. I mean, this is, beloved, the love of God. This is holy love, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. R.C. Sproul put it in this way. He said, quote, on the cross, Jesus becomes in the sight of God the most grotesque display of ugliness imaginable. He is now, he said, polluted with the cumulative filth of the sin that he bears for the sheep, end of quote. All that was for you. I mean, when you think about that he gives his own son, but that he gives his own son to die, and really to experience rejection, possibly some of us have experienced rejection for the cause of Christ. But, oh, beloved, how great would be our Lord's rejection. He came into his own, and his own, what? Received him not. At his greatest hour of need and support, we know from the Gospels that all of the disciples turned and fled from him. We know in the Gospels that Peter denied him. We know that as we come to this table this morning that the religious leaders brutally mocked him. The soldiers pummeled him with their fist. But as difficult as that would have been, his father, as we know from the word of God, must now forsake him. His father must abandon him as he bears the sins of the world upon his shoulders. And as Jesus bore the guilt of our sins alone, God the Father, the mighty creator, Lord of the universe, majestic in holiness, poured out on his only begotten son the full fury of his wrath. 
Listen, beloved, here is truly possibly the greatest moment in the history of the world for us. Justice, as we know, would not be winked at. It would be punished fully in the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, Paul, remember when he says it, that he made him who knew no sin to become what? Sin. So Jesus became the object of the intense hatred of sin and vengeance against that sin that God had patiently stored up since the beginning of the world. God had not simply forgiven sin and forgotten about the punishment in generations past. Oh no. On the cross, the full fury of that wrath stored up against sin was unleashed against God's own Son. So our Lord was indeed bearing upon Himself the horrific consequences of your sinfulness before God. I mean, when you really think about it, just Grace Church of the Valley, the sinless one was made sin that we who are sinners might become sinless through his righteous life. I mean, think about it this way. The immortal dies. That the, that the mortal ones, us, might live forever. So here's the clear teaching of the Scripture. God gave his own son first. Secondly, God gave his own son to die. And then thirdly, and maybe most important this morning, God gave his own son to die, here's the last phrase, for us, for us. In fact, if you look back at the teaching of the scripture, look back in Romans 5, 8. Certainly he loves the world, and we looked at that last week in John three sixteen. But here in Romans 5, 8, God shows His love, and then you have these phrases all over the New Testament, for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In fact, he uses these phrases all over. He says the word sinners there. If you look back in verse 6, he said, for while we, that's us, were still weak, The NASB says, while we were still helpless, 5, 6 of Romans, at the right time, Christ died, it says there, for the ungodly. So we're weak, we're helpless. There we are counted as sinners in verse 8. In verse 10 of Romans chapter 5, we are counted as his enemies. So he gives his own son to die for us. And then you have this litany of scriptures all over the New Testament. In fact, I think some of these will come up maybe on the screen over in 1 John. Look over there in your Bible. In 1 John 2, 2, you have these magnificent statements there. When it says, and again, I want you to personalize this. Of course, it's put in the the plural, but, but it's also individual too, isn't it? But he's talking and writing to churches where in 1 John 2, 2, he is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. But nevertheless, he is the propitiation for our sins. In fact, as we come to the Lord's table, you've got to see that as something intensely personal. You are 
I am separated, was, from God. He gives his own son. But he gives his own son to die. But he gives his own son, the scripture is clear, to die for us. To be the propitiation for our sins. You could say for my sins. It's intensely personal. Look over in your Bible if you want to see it there in the book of Galatians. In Galatians, he says it so clearly there. And this little phrase is all over when he's writing there to that church at Galatia. And he says in Galatians 1.3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it says in 1.4, Who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of, it says there, of our God and Father. So he gave himself for our sins. It is something that is intensely personal as you come to the Lord's table. You're recognizing that though he gave himself to die for the whole world, if you've placed your faith in him, if you've been regenerated and you've placed your faith in him, he really, in that sense, died for your sins. Here he gave himself for our sins. But for the Apostle Paul, it was so personal that he didn't at that point say are. If you look in Galatians 2.20, in that famous scripture, when he says, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. And then this statement, who loved me and gave himself for me. He just came right out and said it there. He loved me, and he gave himself up for me. There ought to be a very real sense as we come to the Lord's table this morning that you can say that he loved me, and he gave himself for me. I'll speak on this next week in John three sixteen. You can see those phrases there in Galatians 2.20 are put in the past tense. He loved me, and he gave himself for me. In other words, he loved me from all eternity, but he gave himself for me looking back on the cross of Christ. But he did that for me, Paul says, and he gave himself for me. And there's a very real sense as you come to the Lord's table, as you take that bread and as you drink that cup, he loved you and continues to love you. He gave his son who gave himself for you on the cross. It is a wonderful truth in the word of God. If you look over in the book of Ephesians, he says very much the same thing in Ephesians chapter 5 in verse 2 there, where back in 5.1 he says, Be imitators of God as beloved children. And then he says in 5.2 of Ephesians, Walk in love, and here it is again, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. If you're in Christ this morning, if you've been regenerated, if you've placed your faith in Christ, He loved you in a particular way. He loved you in a selective way. Certainly, He loves the world in a passionate way, and we talked on that last week. If you weren't here, you need to get that. I would probably deem that maybe as the most important message that I've ever preached in this pulpit, especially out of that text in the Gospel in John 3.16. But He loved us, and He gave Himself up for us. 
very similar again in Romans 5 where he loved us and we were lost and helpless and powerless. How about Isaiah? Do we have that? Maybe that comes up on the screen. You're aware of this, but he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely, watch this, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. I mean, you could say for my grief, for my sorrow, for my transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities and upon him the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds we are healed. This is the clear teaching of scripture. He bore our sin. Do you understand that? Listen, do, do you not think, beloved, of all people at Thanksgiving, we should be the most grateful, don't you think? If you're sitting here this morning and he's cast your sins as far as the east is from the west, if he's taken your sins and put them as far behind him, as it says, if he's taken your sins and buried them in the deepest part of the sea, if he's taken your sins as an Isaiah and wiped them out like a thick cloud, if he's promised to never bring your sins up upon you again, if he said for you in Romans 8, 1, there's now therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus, then I would say of all people, we ought to be the most thankful, right? We ought to be the most filled with joy. For he took our griefs, he took my sorrows, he took my transgression, he was crushed for my iniquity, and the chastening of our well-being, if you will, fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. Look over again, just there, I think it's on the screen, but in 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, I just, I love the way this is said. In 1 Peter chapter 2, in verse 24, it couldn't be any clearer that he himself, here it is again, bore our sins in his body on the tree. I love that phrase. He bore our sins in his body on the cross, in ASB, or on the tree here. In fact, would you look over in your Bible in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, let me just show you that there as well. There's a little phrase, and I often say it this way. It, when, when you look at 2 Corinthians 5.21, it clearly says there that he made him, God, made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's often true, maybe in my own heart, that when I quote that statement there, I often say, he made him who, as it says there, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. But you got to make sure when we talk about the word of God, every word is inspired. Every phrase. You're holding in your hand a fully inspired word of God and every word matters down to the the iota, as Jesus said, down to the apostrophe, as Jesus said in Matthew 5. But I often skip over 
the first phrase of 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says there, and maybe you ought to underline it as it ministered to me, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. For our sake he did that. For our sin. For our sin that belonged to us, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Listen, man would never write that on his own. How could it be that infinite, holy God, for our sake, made him to be sin who knew no sin? Look over in Galatians, just a couple, one book over. In Galatians, it says that there too. I'm just pointing this out. You cannot take communion apart from it being extremely personal. There in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13, you see it again, personalized. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So he redeems us by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed you by becoming a curse for you. It is intensely personal. Look back just for a moment in the book of Romans. I'm just touching on these in Romans chapter 4 in verse 25. I love this. He says it in a very similar way. He says, but the words... Uh, and I'm in 423, it was counted to him, that would be Abraham, of course, was not written for his sake alone. You like this in 424? But ours also. It was counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. I mean, the, the reason this is such a wonderful thought of that he bore our sins. He took my transgressions. He took my sorrow, your sorrow, your transgressions. Is you're reminded in this whole equation, as Blake said this morning, we're sinners. I mean, a young man who's in love will give his loved fiance or his wife Gifts that are beyond measure because of his great love for her. You know that. Jacob, when you go to Genesis 29, served Rachel joyfully for seven years because of his dedication and his love for her. But beloved, as we come to the table with God, he gives us the gift of his son to die for us, we who were sinners, and we who were helpless, and we who were his enemies. Stott put it this way. He said, quote, our sin must be extremely horrible. He said, nothing reveals the gravity of sin like the cross. For ultimately, what sent Christ there was neither the greed of Judas, nor the envy of the priest, nor the vacillating cowardice of Pilate, but our own greed, our own envy, our own cowardice, 
and other sins. And then he said, in Christ, resolve, if you will, in love and mercy to bear the judgment and so put them away. Stott went on to say it is impossible for us to face Christ's cross with integrity and to not feel ashamed of ourselves. He said apathy, selfishness, and complacency blossom everywhere in the world except at the cross. He said there those noxious weeds shrivel and die. There they are seen for the tatty, poisonous things they are. He said for there was no way by which the righteousness of God could righteously forgive our unrighteousness except that he should bear it in himself in Christ. It must be serious indeed. And indeed our sin was. It, it was. But just one, one final question. We know that. But just this question. What was the ultimate cause of Christ coming and dying for your sins? What was the cause? What moved God to give His Son, His only Son, His only, at least in one translation, I get it, His only begotten, His only unique Son to be delivered over to such a hideous death on your behalf? What moved God to do that? Of course, the answer, as we've been studying, is the love of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, or His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have, what? Everlasting or eternal life. Listen, the ultimate cause of the atonement is the love of God. That God shows or demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. Listen, if you ever, and I don't mean this to be sarcastic, have a self-esteem problem, you need to find yourself back at the foot of cross for what God Almighty did with His Son to die and to die for you in your place for this simple reason. He set His love upon you. The cause of the atonement is the love of God. 1 John, the Apostle John, says in 1 John 3.16, We know love by this, that He laid down His life for what? Us. He laid down His life for us. Look back maybe. I don't know if this is a sore exercise. Look back at Thanksgiving. How grateful are you? I'm not talking about your family. I'm not talking about your grandpa. I'm not talking about your grandma. I'm not talking about your mom or, your, you know, your, your How thankful are you that all your sins are forgiven? You, you remember that great hymn by Charles Wesley? I'm sure you do. And can it be? Think about these words that he penned. He left his father's throne above, so free, so infinite his grace, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for oh my God, it found out me amazing, what? Love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst, what? Die for me. Listen, apart 
from the cross, we would have never known what true love is all about. In fact, John said it in 1 John three sixteen. We know love by this. Listen, if you're looking for a definition of love, don't go to the latest Hollywood movie. Go look to Calvary. Go look to Calvary. John the Apostle said this, and this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What a great truth. First John 4, 9, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Beloved, the cross is the ultimate act of the divine love pouring out from the Father to redeem lost sinners who were under God's wrath. So let me just ask you, do you see this morning the absolute necessity of Christ's death to give you life and liberty from the eternal torment of hell? Listen, God the Father has loved you in giving you his only begotten unique son that we who were sinners might live through him. Now you might ask this question, how should we respond to this? I mean, maybe we'd get to this point and we're done here. So what? What, what, does, that, what, what does this mean to me? Well, let me just suggest two things to you. Maybe the Spirit of God can do that, and maybe in your own heart he already has. But number one, practically, in light of this teaching, number one, you personally ought to love him and worship him and praise him and honor him as the first priority in your life. If you're in high school here, your greatest passion, your greatest joy, Your greatest act of worship ought to be to give him the praise and the honor to God the Father and to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords who came and was sent by God on a mission to die for you. John 3.17 says, For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be what? saved through him. And it ought to lead you to worship. It ought to lead you to praise. It ought to lead you to honor. It ought to lead you to open your wallet and give back in worship. Your whole life, my whole life, should be one of worship and adoration. When we get there at the marriage supper of the Lamb, all the elders will fall down giving him praise and honor. And I pray that we can do that now. Fathers, is that your heart? Some of you watch your kids Come here and catch the joy of the Lord. Has it caught your heart? Mothers, has it caught your heart? Young men in college, young men out of college, young single man or single woman, is this the objective of your heart? Could you say with Wesley in that great hymn, And Can It Be, when he finished, when he said, No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. He said, bold I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So number one, you ought to love him and praise him and honor him. And secondly, just thinking of this, you ought to love one another. You ought to love one another. Because this is what 1 John says in 3.16. We know love by this, I read it earlier, 
that he laid down his life for us. And then it goes on, comma, and we ought to lay our lives down for the what? The brethren. We ought to lay our lives down. I don't know how we can help Shane and Laura. But we can't just pray about them, right? So if you know Shane and Laura, we need to love them. They're part of our flock as he's, he's in this accident. So really, when you think about it, your vertical love for God will show itself in your horizontal love for one another. That if he laid down his life for us, you, preaching myself, ought to lay your lives down for the brethren. In other words, we should be sacrificing for one another. Our church always must be an intense place where we prioritize personal relationships and put the love of God on the cross in his son into practice with each other. 1 John 4.11 says, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another, don't you think? You know, I'm convinced maybe that the reason sometimes people don't serve one another is they've never ever quite experienced the love of God. Maybe some of us, and myself included, go back and read Ephesians 1 and read Ephesians 3, that we'd know something of the height and the depth and the breadth and the length of the love of God which surpasses knowledge. All true ministry flows out of a vertical orientation from our love from Him. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who is who loves, has been born of God and knows God. It remains ever part of our experience. If we know him, then it flows from him. So listen, worship him, number one. And number two, put this into practice. And maybe as a family, you ought to just think, hey, who can, who can we minister to? We give you a challenge. Who are you praying for? What neighbor? What classmate? Have you opened your mouth for the gospel? You should. It goes something like this. <laughs> I was in Walmart. Just because, you know, remember that time when I told you that when we did Two Ways to Live and Mike Jackson told me that this doesn't count for me? I was really convicted by that, you know, like my preaching doesn't count. You have to be out there with people. So I'm in Walmart. I'm in there with my boys. And we're buying shells, shotgun shells to shoot skeet just for fun. And the guy behind the counter is just really gracious, telling us about guns, showing us his, his guns, showing us his, his collection, and showing us, I mean, it's amazing what the guy had. He's a fully, he's an army all by himself, but really just sweet and kind and went on to say that he was a drug addict who was marvelously uh, kept alive by his wife. He went dead on the, the table, if you will, and uh, they brought him back. I just still call those things the ringers. And so he's going through his life for about five minutes, and all you have to do is ask one question. Hey, do, where does God fit into your life spiritually? Maybe he's here this morning. I invited him to come. All you need to do is ask a question because as he's showing me his love, I asked him about that and I told him that he needs to, to love God. And, and we had just a great conversation. But listen, all you have to do in the conversation is ask somebody about where God is in their life and where he's at spiritually. Listen, our church needs to be a thriving community who loves him intensely and personally and then loves each other as we reach out with the love of God, especially to the household of faith. 
So as I pray, as we come to communion, that that would be our passion. 